to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. I am sitting today with my guest, Micah McElroy, who is a PhD student who is studying the history of philanthropy in America. A very interesting topic. I'm sure he'll have lots to say about it. So welcome, Micah. Sure. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this topic. Sure. So I grew up in Eureka, California. I had a pretty working class upbringing. Eureka is a really beautiful place, but it's also a place with a high degree of homelessness, a large methamphetamine problem. The county's kind of poor. And I think growing up there left me really feeling that in the United States, a lot of people aren't necessarily very well taken care of or aren't necessarily very well compensated for their work. And so by the time I graduated from community college, I went to UC Berkeley to pursue a BA in history with a particular interest in those questions of how have Americans taken care of each other? How do they understand the social obligations to each other? And that led me into these kind of questions of thinking about philanthropy and charity and welfare. And after about uh, a year of working in the Bay Area, I was fortunate enough, I still don't quite understand how this actually happened, I was very lucky, to then continue my studies at Columbia, where I'm now in the doctoral program studying the history of philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area. Ah, so that's very specific. And being a Bay Area native myself, I'm very, very interested. But can you tell me, for my audience who may not be from the Bay Area, sort of the larger themes and historical trends of philanthropy in the U.S.? Sure. So I think one place to start, and this is a place in which many people begin, is sort of in the early United States with the account of Alexei de Tocqueville, who is often referenced when you're thinking about the place of private giving and voluntarism in the United States. And for those who don't know, Tocqueville is this French guy, it's kind of an aristocratic background. He comes to the United States in the 1830s. And what he sees in the United States is this really vibrant tendency amongst Americans to create voluntary associations, this tendency to join together, which he finds to be pretty remarkable because unlike places in Europe, especially talking about France and England, a lot of the responsibilities that Americans are performing through these voluntary associations would be the responsibility of central governments or aristocrats or some kind of elite. And for Tocqueville, this sort of art of joining, this, this tendency for Americans to get really involved in voluntary associations was absolutely essential to American democracy. Because rather than conferring responsibilities that governments are performing elsewhere, individuals and groups are performing those tasks in the United States. And for Tocqueville, it's actually, it's partly the absence of these sort of wealthy individuals and elites and kind of bureaucratic governments that necessitates this sort of involvement in the United States towards not just engagement in voluntary associations, but towards mass giving. So what he's talking about is lots of individual gifts of money and time not so much the kind of acts of large-scale philanthropy, which come about later. I, I, I wouldn't call this in the 19th century necessarily philanthropy. Nevertheless, it does constitute a, a really important part of American life at the time. I'm wondering, in 
contrast to the the America that de Tocqueville saw. I think we're looking at in our modern day society a great disparity in wealth, and I think there's I don't know how strong an obligation that people of means and of wealth feel to be philanthropic. Could you speak to that a little bit? I do think that what the question is sort of asking is whether it's actually possible to expect that philanthropists can accomplish some kind of meaningful social change in a manner that really improves people's lives without tackling these more fundamental problems in politics and economy, which in the United States is usually sort of put under the umbrella of capitalism. And if you suspect that capitalism and the inequalities that it produces are the root causes of of many problems in the United States, many of which nonprofits are trying to address, then you might potentially enter into this sort of paradox, because if capitalism inequality are the cause of those problems, then it's also created the large philanthropic fortunes, which are supposedly trying to address those same problems. I'd say yes, I think that absolutely philanthropy and charity and the nonprofit sector more largely can make critical improvements in the lives of people. I don't think that should be dismissed, but I do think that's also an increasing awareness in the United States. And I think you can see this in a lot of the speeches of the sort of presidential hopefuls within the Democratic Party, but also with like people like Ocasio-Cortez or some of the sort of young socialists that without more radical change of policies that might determine distribution of wealth or healthcare education or so on, that the serious problems that philanthropists and nonprofits are trying to address may continue to persist or may even grow worse. And, you know, I, I think that there's some legitimacy to that perspective, but I think that even if you follow that train of logic, if you really do believe that maybe there should be more public oversight over problems like global warming or healthcare or income inequality, I don't think that means philanthropy in the nonprofit sector will will dissipate or that they don't have some kind of important role that they can fulfill in actually accomplishing those ends. And I think actually history suggests that foundations and philanthropists can do a great deal to actually accomplish this sort of expansion of public oversight that a lot of people might be calling for. So I think one of the most noted examples is actually going back to the very beginning of philanthropy in the 20th century is the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission. So this is started in 1909 by John D. Rockefeller. And essentially what it's setting out to do is identify and resolve what had been a persistent problem in the rural South. And at the time, the rural South is a particularly poor region of the United States. The elites in the South have no interest in taxing themselves to provide for public infrastructure. And what you have in some parts of the countryside is this humid weather, poor people, and very little infrastructure that leads to really unsanitary conditions. And poor Southerners who are so poor that they might not even have shoes, they're not particularly well educated, they don't understand how diseases may necessarily work, are contracting this infection through soil that's just contaminated by human waste that's making them very lethargic, that's making it harder for them to work. So this is a disease of poverty that's actually making people poor because they can't really perform their work. And so the Sanitary Commission sets out to actually try and address this problem. But what they find in the South is that Southerners, especially Southern elites, are really skeptical of this Northern philanthropy coming down to the South and telling everyone, this is how you fix this problem. We've done all this research. Let us fix this problem for you. So what the Sanitary Commission ends up doing is trying to work with Southern elites by actually expanding Southern government's capacity to 
address public health crises at the time and into the future. So the Sanitary Commission actually uh, helps create the first Southern public health boards. It helps staff them. It helps pay for those staff members. It does a great deal of public demonstrations. It really buttresses basically the government's capacity to deal with this crisis and crisis into the future. So I, I think this is one example of, which was somewhat successful, of the Sanitary Commission really, a philanthropy really bolstering public capacity to solve problems. But I, I do want to say one other thing about this, because I do think this teaches one additional lesson, that even though this is usually heralded as like a, a very heroic and commendable act of philanthropy, in the process of trying to work with Southern elites, the Sanitary Commission had to ignore a great deal as well. So it had to ignore the fact that there was poorer health among Black Southerners than there were white Southerners. It couldn't touch this problem of segregation. It couldn't criticize industrial mills that were causing some of the soil contamination that the Sanitary Commission was worried about. And actually what we've seen in the more recent decades is that there's been a resurgence of hookworm in the same areas that the Sanitary Commission was working in. So now it's actually, it's quite depressing. There's a, there's a Guardian expose about this, that, you know, drinking water is contaminated with, with sewage. There's sewage leaking into the soil. And in part, it's, it's because people can't afford septic systems. They're paid so little in these regions that they can't actually afford septic systems. But also the government is doing very little to provide that infrastructure as well. And so I think what this instance tells us is that, yes, philanthropy has a role in actually expanding public capacity to meet these really large problems. But if those projects are to be successful in the long term, that means that philanthropy also has to be engaged in really interrogating and trying to address inequities of racism and class that might shape those public institutions into the future. One thing I was thinking about as you were explaining the history of philanthropies, it seems to me that the philanthropists of, you know, what we think of like the Rockefellers and so forth, really had a sense of obligation to the larger community. And I wonder if in the day and age that we live in now, which it feels like everything is so fractionalized and like, is there really a sense of an American ethos? Do we see philanthropy taking the same role in society as we have in the historical age? I think in one way, if you're thinking about sort of an American ethos, I do think that there's a link between sort of more modern iterations of philanthropy and older ones. And we can certainly also talk about differences, but just in thinking about similarities, I think one is, and I think this is very American, is this commitment to using philanthropy to encourage self-help. So this idea that philanthropy should equip beneficiaries with the tools to help themselves succeed. And I think that's actually been the motive behind some of the more historically significant acts of philanthropy, even the more commendable ones. So one that comes to mind immediately is the Carnegie Libraries, which, you know, this is some something that Andrew Carnegie started in 1883. It quickly becomes this multi-decade commitment to funding public libraries across the United States and the world with this presumption, right, that with free access to libraries, because these were meant to be explicitly public libraries, not private libraries, that Americans in rural and urban areas could come to libraries, and as long as they're willing to take the time to read these books, they could improve themselves, maybe even improve their station in life. And this is drawing from Carnegie's own experience. He spent a lot of time in a private library. He thought that this really equipped him to become the successful entrepreneur that he was later. 
And so he ends up donating what, what I've seen to be estimated to be about a billion dollars in today's money to create over 1,600 libraries, which just inaugurates this golden age of literacy. And you can actually compare this in some ways to Bill Gates' drive to try and expand public access to the internet. Mm -hmm. But I think while there's a lot to actually praise about the Carnegie libraries, some of which, which still exist, the self-help aspiration that sort of undergirds them does deserve, I think, some scrutiny. You know, I really no doubt that these public libraries actually did enrich people's lives. I know that you know, I definitely went to a lot of public libraries growing up. But they're really very indirect solvents to problems that confront people in their day-to-day -day lives, you know, such as income inequality or, or racism. So some of the Carnegie libraries, for instance, this is time, again, Jim Crow segregation, some of them were segregated. And while they may have been separate, they certainly weren't equal. So usually black patrons would go into libraries that were more poorly stocked than those that the white patrons would be able to access. And also during this time, workers themselves do protest the Carnegie libraries. They suggest that, you know, the only reason that Carnegie can now do these grand acts of munificence is that he's really deprived his workers of the wages that they're due. And they, in some cases, in Carnegie's home state, protest the construction of libraries saying that, you know, we don't really want more books, we want higher wages. And so, I, I, I mean, there's, there's more examples we could actually talk about, I think, the Julius Rosenwald instance of funding schools for black children in Jim Crow South is another really one of these commendable acts of philanthropy in its time. And just to say a little bit about Rosenwald, he was, he was the part owner of Sears Roebuck and Company. He actually, I think in the last few years, has, has been like this renaissance of interest in Rosenwald. There was a documentary made about him that was extremely it gave him a lot of praise, just to say that much. It gave him a lot of praise. You know, Rosenwald, he creates, I think, something like, a, it's, it's over 5,000 schools for Black children in the South, which is a population really underserved in the South. And I think, you know, as much as we should commend Rosenwald for this act, which really was very important for many Black children, I, I never want to say that certain people don't deserve an education, which may have always been the case had Rosenwald not intervened. But Rosenwald was, again, not really interested in trying to challenge Jim Crow segregation itself. He thought that perhaps by providing these schools that people would be able to equip themselves with the skills to improve their lives without highly having to, to question these policies that might otherwise keep them from actually aspiring to upward mobility. And it's only within a few decades after these schools are created that you can really see, and I think this still persists, that schools that were chartered expressly for black populations were incredibly underfunded compared to schools meant for white populations. And that was a result of state policy that Rosenwald wasn't really interested in interrogating. I think he really did have this sort of extremely optimistic perspective that, I mean, it had worked for him. America had turned out to be a great place and with some accommodation and a great amount of effort, you could yield greater results in some kind of radical large-scale change. So what I'm hearing is that a lot of the, the golden age of philanthropists have reinforced this notion of the American dream. But in fact, at the same time that they're giving to reinforce this idea of like pulling yourself up by their bootstraps, in many other ways, they're reinforcing the institutional racism and inequalities that keep people in their position. In some cases, again, like I, I, I want to qualify my criticism because I... I I wouldn't want these, I wouldn't want the Rosenwald schools or the Carnegie libraries to have not existed. But yeah, I think that as much as philanthropists often want to address 
core problems and underlying problems, and that has long been part of the definition of philanthropy historically, I don't think that these really actually accomplish that. And I, I think also self-help, I think, has sort of a, a negative connotation in that way, and that when you talk about self-help and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you're really leaving sort of the, the structural problems that actually keep people from lifting themselves up unexamined. But I would say that self-help, it does actually have different meanings and it has been contested historically. So there's another instance in the history of philanthropy that's more recent that attests to this, which is foundation engagement with farm workers in California in the 1960s. So a lot of these farm workers who were largely Mexican-American or, or first-generation Mexican immigrants, they believed in a notion of self-help, which was that they would be able to help themselves as a community, attain a degree of self-determination, be able to have more control over their employment conditions. And for them, what that meant was trying to form some kind of organized union to really contend with their employers who had a great deal of power over them. Foundations were really interested in this problem, and especially program officers understood that this is really bad. Uh, these people are being exploited. They are being paid very poor wages. And probably there's some merit in this idea that they should have a union. But Erica Colorenis, who's written about this in a book called The Self-Help Myth, basically argues that as much as program officers might have been sympathetic to the problems that farm workers were confronting, board members in some of these foundations were much less sympathetic. And I know this is actually from from my own research about San Francisco, the Rosenwald Foundation, which is a San Francisco-based foundation which still exists, uh, worked with the American Friends Service Committee to try and address some of these problems of California farm workers. But in the case of the American Friends Service Committee, which is a Quaker organization, one of the board members was much more sympathetic to agribusiness. And this is back in the 1930s and 40s even, so even before the 60s. And so they just flatly refused to do anything about organizing farm workers, even though there was a lot of sympathy amongst program officers for that objective. So I think that the, the sense of self-help that might be articulated by program officers and social movements on the ground and board members, they can all mean very different things. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a disempowering term to talk about. Because I see that that dynamic plays out even today uh, amongst my executive director friends and, and really trying to bridge the gap between what happens on the ground and where the resources might be coming from, be it board members or foundations and board members on foundations to help them understand what's actually happening. So what would you call the golden age of philanthropy? Are we living through it now? I mean, when I think about all of the incredible wealth of like the Buffets and the Gates and the Bezoses, it seems like there's, there's a lot of money out there. And I'm wondering if you would say that it's are we living through a golden age of philanthropy or would you equate it to an earlier age? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, maybe maybe what we can do is we can actually compare uh, sort of the contemporary philanthropy with philanthropy's origins. I think that a lot of times when people talk about the novelty of contemporary philanthropy, sometimes they sort of miss that historical context, evaluate whether it in fact really is novel. And so I, I think going back to the origins of philanthropy might be helpful to sort of evaluate this question. And, and really the origins of American philanthropy, I've heard so many different explanations. I've heard explanations that go back to ancient Rome and trace all the way back to the United States, but actually philanthropy emerges in a context that's somewhat similar to our own. So it emerges 
in the first Gilded Age, which is the late 19th century, and a lot of economists and commentators now call our era the sort of second Gilded Age. And in part, that similarity comes from, I think, as you sort of mentioned in your question, these very large concentrations of wealth. I mean, they don't compare in any way to what we're confronting nowadays, but the first American millionaires are emerging in this context. It's also a period, not just of great income inequality, but one of class conflict. This is like a period of really heightened labor strikes, immigration, uh, the rise of large corporations, managerial corporations. And it's a period in which charity is undergoing something of a crisis of, you know, people are wondering about these early charitable organizations. How do we actually meet the growing needs of a population that is undergoing some kind of industrial crisis where people aren't being paid enough, people can't find work and so on. And it's out of this context that you get people like Andrew Carnegie, who, you know, is this one of these great American millionaires who in 1889 writes the, this essay that sort of becomes the ur-text for philanthropy into our own era, which is, is usually commonly called the gospel of wealth, although it was actually just referred to as wealth in his time. And what Carnegie argues, and I think this is interesting for thinking about how philanthropy talks about itself nowadays, is that essentially inequality is sort of natural, that you know people like himself, they had used their merit and skill to rise to the top. And other people could also do that if they tried hard enough. So that's sort of, you can see where that links to his libraries a little bit. But he was also worried very much about the tensions of his era, as I think modern philanthropists are as well about this one. And they believe, and and Carnegie believed, I think this makes him distinctive, but again, somewhat similar to today, is that it was the duty of people such as himself to give away their money while they were alive. So he was actively criticizing people who would come before him, who would sort of sit on their money, maybe give it to their heirs or give it away to some kind of charitable purpose after they were dead or on their deathbed. He also was really critical of charity. And I think this is where you get the sort of distinctive element of what defines philanthropy and that he believed that charity actually made problems worse. I'm not saying this is necessarily true, but his idea here is that if you just give people money, they may go ahead and spend that money in ways that are actually not good for them. So I think, you know, one, I think this is a conundrum that maybe some people confront when, you know, someone might ask them for money on the street and they think, well, if I give them this money, what are they really going to do with it? And for Carnegie, he's very cynical. He thinks, well, maybe he even says this in his essay, well, people are probably going to go out and buy drink or they're not going to lift themselves up. So the solution that he offers, and I think this sort of still you see in modern philanthropy, is that philanthropy should provide ladders to upward mobility for the willing beneficiary to climb. So someone who's really going to work hard, such as, you know, and and you can accomplish this by funding libraries, by funding education, other sources of self-help, but you're not really necessarily gonna give money directly to people who might need it for some kind of immediate material need. And I think another aspect of this philanthropy that's being cultivated at this time is the idea that philanthropy should really take aim at the root causes of social problems. So not just by funding traditional causes, which in some ways are actually outlined in Carnegie's gospel of wealth. Like he's not as advanced as I think sometimes we think of him. So he he still wants to fund libraries and schools. He's not thinking, for instance, about engaging in large scale research projects or trying to engage in projects of professionalization or, or so on. These are these are aspects of philanthropy that emerge with people like John D. Rockefeller, this idea that philanthropy should be like the modern corporation, much larger in its ambitions. It should engage in big projects of research. 
Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that you say that because I see so many of these trends that play out today. Like when I think about, for example, the Robin Hood Foundation, the way mm-hmm. that they're attacking the pro- problems of poverty and, and treating it both as kind of a corporate problem to solve, but also funding ladders out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it's interesting that like these echoes are still continuing to reverberate throughout the ages. And yet I think that there's, you know, the cynic would say that there's definitely a self-serving aspect to the ph- philanthropic inclinations of the robber barons, which is like, if I give money and sort of tamp down all of these social, the social unrest that potentially might unseat me in my position. Would you say that that was an aspect of their giving? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that they were very concerned about the sort of social discord of their era and hope that by giving away their money, they would sort of uh, earn the acquiescence of people who might have been somewhat discontented. But, you know, I, I think in our own era, actually, I'm seeing some of the criticisms of philanthropy that existed even in Carnegie's time because people at that time also recognized that, well, you know, maybe this is just trying to purchase our acquiescence and that you're trying to purchase your way out of maybe amoral business practices that you engaged in to accumulate your money. Um, And I think that's actually really interesting. So actually from really early on, some Americans argued that you couldn't really do real philanthropy unless it required a genuine sacrifice on behalf of a donor. And so what that usually meant was a sacrifice that actively went against either in some kind of material way or some kind of moral way against the economic system that had some thought disproportionately favored that donor. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's a really famous case in 1905, John D. Rockefeller gives this big amount of money to the missionary arm of the Congregational Church. And the church turns around and says, no, we're not going to take this money because this money is tainted. This is this, there's this idea of tainted money because they believe that Rockefeller had only earned his money by committing really immoral and, and contemptible acts. And I, you know, Rockefeller was pretty ruthless. I don't know if we had to go that far, but he was pretty ruthless. And since the church was meant to be a moral institution, they believed that accepting his money would actively compromise their mission. However, I, I think what's kind of interesting is that there was a similar case not too long ago, and this is something that Benjamin Soskis, who's a scholar of uh, philanthropic history, has written about, where the Catholic University of America was approached with a large donation from the Koch brothers mm-hmm. to create some kind of free market educational program. And it elicited a huge amount of controversy, but they ultimately did take the money. So I don't know how much the tainted money criticism still holds, but I, I do still see it. So I think one of the more notable instances more recently has followed in the wake of Jeff Bezos' announcement that he's going to commit some of his money, just a small slice of his very enormous fortune, of a fortune that equals, I think, like the GDP of 100 nations to philanthropy. And one of these criticisms, or, or I think uh, actually a pretty balanced suggestion was by Farhad Manju, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote an, an interesting article in the New York Times, where essentially he argues that what Jeff Bezos should do with his philanthropy is engage in a project that makes that kind of philanthropy impossible and essentially to spend his money in such a way that no one could accumulate as much money as Jeff Bezos has to become as large of a philanthropist as he may well become. And so that might mean, you know, addressing problems of low wages, uh, unionization, poor benefits, essentially sort of the problems that Manju thinks allow Jeff Bezos to accumulate as much money as he did. Also trying to make taxes more progressive, 
And I, I do think that that is a possibility. I think that philanthropy could do that. I think that it would be extremely difficult. I mean, there's Pablo Eisenberg has talked about like, what would it actually take for philanthropy to really become the sort of countervailing force to, you know, uh, these problems of income inequality and, and more largely capitalism, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. And it might mean doing things like granting very generous general support to nonprofits. It might mean trying to find leaders who are more amenable to those kind of visions. It would mean really a multi-decade commitment, but it's not impossible. I, I do mm-hmm. think it sounds really difficult. It sounds really difficult to ask Jeff Bezos to sort of lift the rock that he's standing on and try and resolve some of these problems. But on the other hand, the Ford Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, they have now started to define inequality and some of these problems as program areas and as problems that can actually be resolved, which makes them, I think, which makes this generation of philanthropy quite unlike Carnegie's time. If Carnegie thought that inequality was natural and wasn't something that necessarily needed to be addressed, now we're seeing foundations actually thinking of inequality as something that is unnatural and actually detrimental to the economy and to people's health and well-being and political power and that needs to be addressed. So yeah, I, you know, if philanthropy is really engaged in these big bets and wants to be interested in innovation and ventures, I think probably one of the biggest bets it could make is really tackling the inequalities that in some way actually make really large acts of philanthropy possible. Micah, I'm hopeful you've given us a lot to think about, and it's actually so interesting to think about the how history repeats itself because we're definitely seeing a lot of what you're talking about and the themes and the cycles playing itself out again. And, the second golden age. It's funny. I never heard it called that, but it is actually very <laughs> apropos. Micah, I really appreciate your being on the show. Thank you so much. Sure, thank you. Bye.